Welcome to Creative Income, a podcast that focuses on making a living in the creative space. Whether you're an actor, filmmaker, musician, painter, or anything that doesn't fit the 9 to 5 mold, there is value for you here. I'm Lars Lindstrom. Let's get into it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Creative Income. Lars Lindstrom here. I, at the time of this recording, was kind of feeling like, oh, man, I got eight reviews on Apple Podcasts, and I went to check it again, and I I checked this thing kind of a little bit too much. It's a little bit uh, ridiculous, because I'm, I'm, this is all new for me and exciting, and and in like an hour, we got four more reviews, so I went from eight to 12. Thank you. That was really awesome. I'm recording this late at night. The girls are in bed, so I'm like trying to keep my, my, <laughs> my voice down enough, but I'm actually truly very excited about it, so thank you very much. Uh, we have 300 downloads in about three weeks. I think it's good. You know, the thing that I'm seeing that I'm happy about is that every time I release an episode, that day becomes the most downloads we have so far. Um, so I want to keep that trend up. I don't see a lot of sharing and I, I'm kind of looking at you. Yes, you let's, let's share this thing. And I, I'm doing an introductory episode. That might be the one to share. Cause if you know me personally, Maybe that's the one, and then hopefully that can start to snowball a little bit, and we can grow this thing. But uh, so far, I'm feeling really great about it, and uh, this episode is particularly wonderful. Preston Pugmire I've known for about 15 years. I knew him as a musician. He was playing 46 states in the in the country, probably hundreds of shows a year, but the way he did it is unique and fascinating. He was making six figures as a musician. And then when it came time to start a family with his wonderful wife, Corinne, they switched paths. They switched career paths. This podcast follows like a perfect three-act structure. It's long. So if you if you can hang in there, and you really should because it's wonderful information, um, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the middle is kind of rocky. And he goes into some detail that I don't think he's gone into a lot of this kind of detail before in other podcasts. Uh, you'll find it fascinating. You'll find him intriguing and wonderful. He's incredibly knowledgeable. Now he's a life coach. And I think every bit of much of what he does now applies to the creative field. So here we go. Get ready. Preston Pugmire, thank you so much for being here. Uh, you've been a friend of mine for probably, I don't know, gosh, 14 years, 15 years, something yeah. like that. Yeah, it's um, been a while. Tell, tell a little bit, uh, uh, the audience, what you do. So what I do now is I assist entrepreneurs in getting out of their own way so that they can make more money. I mean, I'm a marketing coach, a business coach, and a life coach. Just basically, I help people level up their life, which includes peace in their heart, money in their bank. So that's what that's, I do. That's, now. that's not how I met you, though. When I met you, I actually met you uh, up in, in uh, Rexburg, Idaho, a little town in the middle of nowhere, Eastern Idaho. And I was blown away by not your life coaching, but by your stage presence. And this is before you knew me. I went to a little concert. It was before I even went to college there. Um, I was visiting a friend and he was like, hey, there's this little show. Let's go see it. And I went and I saw you. And I think you had just asked your now wife to marry you. You had just gotten engaged. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like hearing that, man, because in my former life, I was a musician, and I love music. It's a huge, huge part of who I am at my core. I love performing. I love entertaining. I love connecting. I'm a singer and a songwriter, and I have performed on you know, well over a 1,000 stages uh, just all over the country in 46 different states. Uh, I used to make my money being a performer, a solo performer at universities and colleges and, and corporations and then clubs as well. But uh, yeah, thank you for saying that about, about yeah, of course. because I, that's who I am at, at my core is just a, a connector and an entertainer. Love it. So I feel like there's, there's two parts to this podcast. We can break it down a little bit. So first, obviously musicians, I, the musicians definitely fit the creative space. Um, and, and I feel like they struggle with, with financing, right? How do musicians make money? And the way you explained it to me and and uh, what I witnessed while I was actually your friend at college, um, I thought was absolutely brilliant. So let's let's start from the beginning a little bit um, when you first started making money as a musician and then how you were able to scale that. 
So a little, little bit of this is going to be antiquated just because you know the industry moves very fast and mm-hmm. because the way that people make money, like I, I made money selling CDs. I mean, that was 10 years ago, right? So, <laughs> so people are going to be like, why should I listen to this guy? Be like, well, okay, this is why you should listen to me because uh, that is one of the ways that I made money. The main way that I made money was performing for universities and colleges at uh, through what's called activities committees and through something called NACA, the National Association of Campus Activities. Every Mm -hmm. university has an activities committee and a budget. Now, it is different right now. Obviously, everything is infused with the world we live in right now with COVID and stuff like that. So things are going to be a little bit different. But I'll just tell briefly about what I did is I would go to these uh, big conventions where these universities would send representatives. So there's, you know, 1500 people at these different conventions. And it was like, it was a half trade show, half performance concert thing. And they would last three days and there was musicians, there was magicians, there was comedians, <laughs> there was like, you know, people doing uh, just variety show stuff. It's just entertainment. Right. And, the the colleges and the universities would come with their calendars and with their budgets, and then we would do a showcase. Every artist would get an opportunity to do a showcase, and I would perform for 15 minutes, and then they would decide whether or not they wanted to book me. I would set my own prices, and then they would see, are you available at this time? And then it would end up working from, from there. So when I came into that world, uh, I didn't quite understand what what I was doing, but I was willing to take a chance. And so there's a couple of things that I want to kind of tell people, not just musicians, but anybody that's not working a straight up nine to five is it's going to look different. It's just going <laughs> to look different than you think it is, man. Guaranteed it's going to look different. So you have to be willing to flow. You have to be willing to take risks, calculated, smart risks. I'll talk about that in a second, but like, Mm -hmm. uh, but you also have to be willing to have things look different. For example, uh, growing up, I always thought, okay, being a successful musician meant getting a record deal and then going on tour and selling albums. Like that's what that looked like in my mind. And then I realized, oh, okay, well, there, there is a barrier to entry in that, in that kind of business model. There just is. So the record labels have to be the gatekeepers in that specific business model. That has completely changed with how YouTube and Spotify and just streaming services, but also like people doing Twitter, Instagram, you can get your information, not information, you can get your art out to everybody else to to a different audience, but then you have to figure out how to build an audience, which is a whole different thing. But make sure that you're open to things looking differently. I didn't make money from being signed. Nobody knew who I was. Uh, on a national scale, I was. Yeah, but selling, I did. You know, I, mean, I knew you were. <laughs> yeah, you did. But I was selling records, um, CDs, you know, and streaming downloads and iTunes downloads and stuff. But I wasn't making a ton of money from that. I only made, you know, whatever, like ten, probably twenty thousand dollars over the course of like three years just with records with selling cds which yeah. is you know twenty thousand dollars a lot but you spread that over three years and you're not living off of that <laughs> yeah and so yeah but so what i'm saying is that's not where people are making money with streaming services and downloads and things like that where i was making money was the the corp- corporations where i was doing like corporate events and the colleges and universities were paying me a set flat fee to come and perform regardless of how many people came. I mean, there were shows that I did in auditoriums that were there, you know, three, 400 people. And I had them eaten out of the palm of my hands and it was just incredible. And I'm selling a ton of t-shirts and a ton of CDs afterwards. And then there's other shows where I'm literally performing for three people. How weird. Three. (laughs) And I'm, and I'm contracted to do an hour of performance. Right. And, so yeah, oh, is right, and so it's it's not all glam and glitz. And uh, <laughs> there were some shows that I performed where I was. It, it was a community college that had they didn't have any on campus housing, so everybody was traveling to the campus. So they had to do everything during the day because they couldn't get people to come back to the campus in the evening. And so I'm playing in a cafeteria at noon. Wow! And I'm competing with the the chicken finger buffet 
And so <laughs> like that's where my attention is. Com- that's the competition there. And then there's people who are waiting for me to get done, literally waiting for me to get done so that they can finish their Magic the Gathering game that they're playing, uh, the cards <laughs> on the table. And I am literally just an interruption to them. And so, I mean, that's there's that, but that's because that's a funnier story to tell than, oh, this one time I played this amazing show and I had everybody asking for my autograph afterwards and blah, blah, blah. Like that, that's, that's a boring story. Yeah. Uh, but these other ones are so funny. Because how did it you, comes how, with this is a package deal, man. It's a package deal. Yeah. How did you hear about or or learn about this activities committee thing in the first place? Where did you hear about that and start auditioning for that? Carrie Judd. Do you remember Carrie? I do he, remember Carrie. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's just a musician that lived in Wyoming and, and, and Idaho here. And I, I was just friends with him in the music scene and he had done it. And so I was like, tell me a little bit about that. And then I so this is I did. I went online and I Googled like how to get into the college market. And there was this person selling an interview. I paid $37 for a one hour long audio recording of an interview that somebody did about it. And I printed off the transcript of this and it was like talking about how to get a, how to make a video to submit to the showcase and then how to like, what you should put in that and how you should, you know, try to book shows and how you should do this. And I did a lot of legwork and mm-hmm. most of it was not fruitful, to be honest. Most of it was not fruitful. It was the, uh, you you have to open a hundred doors to find one that has something useful behind it. And so I did a lot of creating videos and songs and sending out tons and tons of emails and blah, 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 all this stuff and sending out literal physical one sheets. I would send them to the colleges and then one time I submitted this video and I got accepted to a showcase and I went to the showcase and I crushed it. And something else I did that was very helpful is I was unique. I had a unique yeah. niche in the marketplace, which I was at the time it was unique. People are going to laugh now, but like I was this guy doing looping. Like looping is so <laughs> after Ed Sheeran, this is before Ed Sheeran became big. And right. so. I was able to create a niche. I was something memorable and I was something different. Oh, that's the acoustic pop looping guy. Like you have to be able to be known for something. Uh, people don't want to be pigeonholed, but I mean, it, that's yeah, the way to stand out. It's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Where it's like yeah. on the one hand, you're, you know, you're booking shows and people know you for a certain niche. On the other hand, you might burn out because it's the same thing over and over. And this is how I look at it. Like uh, I was taught this principle um, by this guy, it doesn't matter, uh, about The Rock, <laughs> Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He started out with one thing, one thing. He was a wrestler. He was a professional wrestler for over a decade, and that's what he did. He did it day in, day out, and he was known as that. And, and he built up his audience doing that, and then he did a movie. And then he went back to wrestling for a long time. And then he did another movie. And then he went back to wrestling for a long time. And then blah, blah, blah. Now he's the most popular human in the world, it seems, right? <laughs> yes. it's, it's like, and he yeah. has his own tequila line. He has his own uh, T-shirt line. He has his own shoes. He has his do own headphones. That, do you think like, that wrestling for The Rock was a means to an end? Do you think that he was at heart wanting to be an actor but kind of knew that his skill set was in wrestling and that eventually he would – try to use yeah. that audience to convert it to movies i do yeah because yeah. i because of what hulk hogan had done you know the decade before him where he had created a a brand through one specific thing that he was known for and then he was um able to bran- branch out now i know whatever's happened to hulk hogan in the last 20 years i'm just talking about back in the day <laughs> like you get one you become known for one thing and then after you've done that, you've been able to brand, you're, you're able to branch out. Uh, look at it like this. You have a, if you have like four or five sticks and you have a wall that you're trying to break through, if you take four or five different sticks and you push against the wall in four or five different places, you're not going to have as much um, like if, if efficacy. Force. Force, yeah, as if you take all five of those sticks and you put all five of them in one point and push with five sticks in one specific place, and then you break through that wall. So this way way that it's looked at is you take one thing and you just boom, boom, boom. You do that one thing, become known for that one thing, and when you break through the wall, then 
you're able to branch out because you're on the other side of the wall. And the mm-hmm. wall, the metaphorical wall is being known, be- people being aware of you. Because mm-hmm. if somebody says, uh, oh, The Rock has a headphone line, I'm not going to be like, what? He's an actor. I'm going to say, <laughs> oh, shoot, I know who that dude is. Let me check out his headphones because he he puts out quality stuff. But right. if he if he comes out before and he's like, yeah, I'm an actor and I do headphones and I do tequila, I'm like, who are you? I don't even know who you are. What? what? Yeah, this is like, weird. Just stick to one thing, man. You, you got to be known for something before you can right. be known for everything. So if you're hearing this and you're thinking, man, I don't want to pigeonhole myself. Like, it's only pigeonholing if you are unable to break out of that because you don't have any other skills. And when you have other skills, you can't start with all the skills. It's like somebody hands you a business card and it says, uh, you know, I run, I do, I sell essential oils and I do dog walking and I do yoga teaching and I'm also a life coach. Like, okay, what are you? What What does that mean? But if somebody <laughs> yeah. says, I have that experience in, in the film yeah. industry a little bit. I, I was going to say, I have that experience in the film industry a little bit where I, I have a lot of crew members that like, you know, like I'll hire a day player just kind of in a pinch. And at the end of the day, they'll hand me a card and it literally says like, like so-and-so <laughs> director <laughs> slash DP slash first AC slash gaffer slash key grip. And I'm like, bro, <laughs> I would never hire you because you can't be all these things. I would want a Jedi first AC or a Jedi gaffer, but I don't want all this stuff. Exactly. Hey, dude. Yeah. You want a Jedi person to do that one thing. And yeah. if you can get really, really, really good at that one thing, then then you'd be like, oh, okay, he's a he's a day player, but like he's so consistent and he's so good at this. Oh, and he also does this other thing. Oh, okay. Well then mm-hmm. after I've known him as this other person for so long, then I'll be like, okay, I'll be willing to give him a shot at this other thing. But only after you proved yourself to that other thing. So absolutely. That's what I did. I was so basically what I'm saying is I played that one note. I pushed all those sticks at one one point on the wall, which was I am the acoustic pop looping guy. And I was like, I leaned into it. I'm the looping guy. I'm an entertainer, but I'm a looper. And it was just went like that, boom, 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 boom. And it got to the point where I was able to uh pick and choose. I was able to turn after about two years, I was able to turn down shows. I was like, Oh, I only want to do shows on this, this week in November, you know, mm-hmm. of November, I only want to do shows in this week. And so the other ones I'm not available for. So all the colleges and universities, you can figure out your schedule. You can do, you know, redo your schedule around mine. But I wasn't able to do that at first. I was just, Did you I had start to, to build a reputation within that community. Oh yeah. Oh dude. I, I was the guy. Because mm. like I full on in this is 2011, 2012, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, 2013, like this three year period right around there, I, I dominated NACA. Everybody that was involved in that activities committee thing around the universities and the different booking agencies and everybody knew about me. And it's because I not only was I, I was good and I was consistent, but I was friends with everybody. I made yeah. sure that I didn't burn any bridges at all i would i would help everybody out people who were my competitors i would help out my competitors and uh, other musicians and stuff like that i give them tips and tell them how to book this show or how to do this or how to work contracts and things and and all the agencies would talk here's one thing you got to know everybody talks dude everybody Mm. talks and you know this lars like think about your industry the people talk and you you get to the point where you make sure that you have created a brand uh, for yourself that's not just like I'm the looper guy, but like I'm the nice person that is consistent and who you can count on. And so what happened was my booking agency ended up, uh, the, the woman who was running it, one of my favorite people in the world, Nancy Oswine, she actually shut her agency down because she wanted to spend more time with her children. She was working too much. Hmm. And it was perfect for her and her family. Screwed me over. And she was so apologetic. She was telling me like, I'm sorry, but I really need to do this. And I, But what happened was I had seven or eight calls in the next two days, like people calling me. 
all these other booking agencies because they knew that I was consistent. I was known in the, in that little community and I was dependent on, or I was dependable and mm -hmm. that like I, that I had people like lobbying to work with me. And so it turned into this thing that ended up being viable moving forward because I had created that situation. What percentage of your success in that field was your talent being a musician and what percentage was you being a decent human being? So there's another component, which is something that you have no control over. You do have control over your skill, your talent, and you do have control over you being a decent human being. But the third person, the third uh, kind of factor is timing. People don't talk about this a lot, but like mm. I came into that to that industry at the right time with my skill set and with my personality. Um, if I had been, you know, five six years later when looping was more, yeah, the, the a thing, noise would have been then yeah. I, it would have been too much noise. And so it's so you're talking about the percentage of it. Um, initially, it was my skill and talent that got me in the door. And then it's my like being a nice guy and my timing that kept me kept me in the room. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? So yeah. Uh, so initially it was front loaded where it was like you know eighty percent of the the secret sauce or the reason for my success was was the skill and the talent and that had been something that I had been cultivating for two decades. Honestly, I mean like yeah, yeah. I there's so many factors, dude. There's so many factors, and I. You go back to if people have read Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. Like I am an outlier in the sense that my parents split when I was a kid, which was a freaking bummer and shaped the majority of my emotional life. However, one of the things that happened as a result of that is my dad was a bachelor and his the basement in his house was empty and he let me and my friends get um, – speakers and amps and guitars and drums and just leave it up all the time in the basement. And so I had, I had a dad who was supportive and he was also, he had the financial means to when I was, you know, 13 or 14 years old to buy these like pieces of equipment. And then we didn't have he, like a, a family situation or a housing situation that where I had to like pack stuff up or I had to look for a place to practice. I was practicing three, four hours a day from the ages wow. of 14 until 19. And yeah. so I'm serious about that. Like it was every day. And so I had done the 20, I was an outlier and I'd done my 10,000 hours before, before I even, you know, like really graduated any college or anything like that. So incredible. Yeah. Uh, anyway, all this stuff to say, you got to, you got to be have something you're known for and you got to be willing to have it be have it look completely different because I wasn't selling tickets and people didn't know who I was but I was making six figures uh playing the guitar uh, all over the country and it was just a freaking blast do you remember what your flat rate was and did it go up uh, each year yes so that so uh, another factor of my timing uh, is I came in and uh there are so many different uh, like factors that go into the rates, but I put myself at uh, $700 for one show. Um, and hmm. that was my very, that was my very, very first. And, and the so best part when, was you were, because you were creating the, the entire ensemble of music by yourself, it's like you didn't have to split the money with anybody else. I just split you. the check one way. Exactly. And so <laughs> it was, <laughs> and I had, you know, relatively little overhead. I mean, but bottom line is I came in, had this low rate and other people were, um, you know, putting themselves at, you know, a thousand or 1300 or something like that. But if you had been on Ellen or been on the <laughs> voice or been on you know, America's got talent, then you, your stock went up and then you were able to charge, you know, uh, higher fees, you know, 1700, 2000, something like that. Yeah. But but I hadn't. So I came in six or $700 and I booked like, I don't know, I 26, 27 shows on my very first showcase. And then I went to my next showcase, got another one, booked another 27 shows. Then, then I raised my rates to $900 because supply and demand. And then mm -hmm. I got this, I, um, or it was 900 or a thousand. And I got a national showcase. It wasn't a regional showcase. And in one day I booked 
85 shows at a thousand dollars and <laughs> yeah it was it was a complete game changer like that day changed my life absolutely changed my life and um my wife was a so i had just recently been married and i had been or she was a kindergarten teacher she quit teaching and she traveled with me that's another thing there's so many factors dude I'm so, I'm so lucky and I'm so blessed and I put in the effing work and the timing and all this stuff. So my wife traveled with me for three or f- three and a half years. We just lived in car in our car and in our hotels that the colleges would pay for, and we we would just travel. We we did over 600 shows in um in four years in 46 different states. We just like saw the entire country wow. and it was. It was a, a singular time. It was a unique time in our life. We didn't have any kids, and so it was it was absolutely brilliant. And but then I got up to the point where I was, you know, charging thirteen, fourteen hundred dollars for shows. And then we had a child intentionally, and we're like, okay, I'm gonna. <laughs> scale. No, I mean, well, it's it's part of the story. It's like, okay, we are going to. We've been married for six years, and we're like, okay, now we're gonna stop this. And we're going to start the next chapter of our life. And when I say stop, we're going to scale this back and we're going to start the next chapter of our life, which is uh, being parents. And we bought a house and it was just like, lots of different things. But I, I decided, okay, we're going to you know, have the baby and Corinne's going to go back to teaching because she was feeling like we were just living my dream and she was kind of bored with that, which... Totally. I get, man. Yeah. And so yeah. she wanted to go back to teaching. She loves teaching. And I I was actually a stay-at-home dad. What we did was mm-hmm. I was, for three weeks out of the month, I was doing, um, staying with our, our son, and she was teaching. And then one week out of the month, uh, I would tell my booking agency, okay, I want to do one, one week and book these shows on this week. And I was doing, you know... 2000, 1800, 2000 for show. And I would do, you know, six shows during that week. And then I would come back in the other three weeks. I would just be full-time dad while she would go to school or while she was teaching school. And Mm. it, uh, everything just, there's a lot of things that didn't work out. Like I'm not, maybe I should talk more about the the pitfalls and the things. Yeah, let's do. uh, Yeah. I'm curious about some of those. (laughs) Um, well, I was working uh, – well, okay, so like, do you have a specific question? You just want me to talk about things that didn't go well? No, yeah, talk about things that didn't go well, sure. Okay. Uh, one time I – so you have to pay your way to for a showcase. You, you have to pay like to even submit, and then if you get accepted, then you have to pay a showcase acceptance fee, and you have to pay – like hmm. you're in it $2,000 just to get on stage. And there's no guarantee, no guarantee of anything. This is what talking about timing and things worked out well. Because another thing is like uh, where you are in the bill. Like if I'm on, it's a Thursday, Friday, Saturday for the showcase. If I'm on Thursday, then people are, they, they have their calendars open and they have their budgets open. If it's on a Saturday, then they've already filled their calendars and used up a lot of their budgets. And so it's just a lot of, (laughs) <laughs> there's so much to this that is timing. And yeah. when people say, oh man, I just can't get a break. Like there are things outside of your control. So mm-hmm. focus on the things that you can control. Um, and so one time I had a Saturday showcase and I <laughs> had a Saturday showcase and I went and I performed and my... <laughs> my looping pedal didn't work when I went out on stage. It just didn't work. And we did a huge sound check. It's an amazing crew and it's a big stage. And it's a whole, there's 1500 people there. And I go out and my looping pedal just doesn't work. Just (laughs) doesn't work. And I'm, and it's just like, it's, I don't know if you guys have ever been to something like the variety show where it's like, boom, 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 boom. Okay. Comedian, then musician, then this, then this dancer, then this, whatever, whatever. And like, you don't really get a second chance because they're like, they make their decision very, very quickly. And so I had to like 
make jokes about it and like try to do some comedy because it's like trying to all the while I'm my heart has dropped and my limbs are numb because I'm like there's a lot riding on this right now dude and I reset my whole pedal board and it ended up working but I burned the first 60 seconds of their impressions of me looking inept and I just looked wow. inept and wow. and then I played the played the showcase and I'm used to booking 25 23 shows minimum like that's on a bad day and normally I'm getting up in the 30s and you know one time doing 85 and stuff and like and I booked four Yikes. four shows and I'm like I got bills yo like what the heck and then when I say what the heck I'm not like you you colleges owe me anything but I was like Come on, man. Come on, Preston. Like, pick it up. <laughs> and and then after like a little bit, like a week after that uh, had happened, I booked those four. One of the shows just canceled their contract. And I was like, you can't – what do you think a contract is, guys? What Do you know what that word means? Like, you can't just say, oh, I don't want to do it. But they did. And I realized well, – that's where I realized I had no repercussions available there, there were no repercussions for them. I had no course of action. So they just canceled the contract. And I, so I got three shows out of that. And that was my six months worth of work. And I was lucky that I had reserves uh, because I had a mortgage. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, but like, I understand that there are people that don't have that luxury. They just don't. And so I maybe I'm not the best like person to say like, because I had a safety net and if somebody doesn't have a safety net and things don't go like if, if things didn't go well the first time if I only got three shows the very 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 first time we would not be having this conversation right now and I think you're right yeah so it's you just got to realize that there are things in your control and there are things out of your control okay so what are you going to do with that how are you going to yeah. create a situation according to the best of your abilities and are you being honest with yourself about that you're doing everything you can i'm not talking about hustle and effort i'm talking about actually aligning yourself and doing things smart like can you create this situation and then whatever you can't control are you judging yourself for it because that's that's where things fall apart is when you start judging yourself and you get like jaded and bitter and uh and yeah, headed in a different direction. What but. Um, what uh, did you when you had that ca uh, contract cancel on you? Were you able to uh, change anything to have a little bit more control over a situation like that in the future? I think that's something that a lot of artists fear, right? That yeah. someone will take advantage of their work and they have no repercussions, no no recourse. So, have you did that change anything for you? Um, no. I, I wish I had a better <laughs> answer for that, but like I, I realized yeah. that. I didn't really have any power. And so the, the what can I control? I can control whether or not they feel like they need me. Mm. I can control that by how I show up and by how I position myself, my positioning in the marketplace and my messaging in the marketplace. Because when you when you become somebody who is they who they they need, so to speak, and who they can depend on, and then you become somebody who they would not even think about canceling their contract with you because it's not in their best interest. Now, here's the thing where it gets a little unfair. I'm doing unfair in air quotes, but you have to focus on their needs. The, the artists who get a sense of entitlement and who think that they are needed because of them, what I mean, like if, if Preston, if I think that I am needed by that university because of me, then I am, I have given away all of my leverage and all of my power and I'm being a total douche. So if I realize that I am indispensable because I fill and meet one of their needs, then I actually have a position in the marketplace that allows me to to be indispensable 
Yeah. I always say that when I, when I do uh, commercials or something, if I work for an agency and they, they hire me to direct or even do the direction of photography, like I'll, you know, read a pitch or I'll, I'll hear them. And if it goes something like, uh, yeah, we're, we're thinking that uh, we want to do this at the beach, uh, on a park bench with, you know, like a girl and a guy having a conversation over fast food. I'll say to them, Hmm, yeah, cool. What if we, what if we did this at the beach and hear me out? we had a couple sitting on a park bench talking about fast food and I'll just like literally reiterate the exact same words back to them. And they go, yes, yes, that's exactly what we want. And it's like, and it's, it's kind of a joke, right? Where it's like, you, you have to make them feel like you heard them and that you're on the same team. And, and that's kind of how you, you build those relationships and get some of those jobs. Yes. I love that. Well, that's the uh, Stephen Covey's, uh, Principle number four of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, seek first to understand and then seek to be understood. If you can make sure that they feel heard and understood first, you will have more work and you will yeah. have a bigger impact. Uh, because one, like it or not, 100% of people are walking around with a primary subconscious question in their head of what's in this for me. Everybody is. And mm -hmm. if you can answer that question, and they're not being selfish, they just, they're, that's what we're primed for because their brain wants to survive. So, what's in this for me? Okay. So, if you can answer that question, people will love you. People will want to yeah. work with you. This is what's in it for you. Yeah. So now, so now you, how many kids do you have now? Two. You have two kids. And how old are they? Seven, seven and four. Okay. You know, seven year old boy and a four year old girl. And so I get a lot of people in the in the arts industries that uh, talk about that work life balance um, and that want to start families and maybe you know they are a traveling musician and and can't and so there's I, I want to talk to you about that transition going from you're doing a hundred plus shows in forty six different states uh, a year to now you're having a family intentionally uh, as you put it and what does that transition look like and what do you now do. Okay, so this is – I want to talk about this very briefly because it, it's so relatable. It's so rele relevant. Relevant, not not necessarily relatable, but like it's relevant. Mel Robbins, she's an author. She talks – she has an author, a book called The Five-Second Rule. Uh, she talks about if you're going to leave your job or if you're going to transition to another job, um, there has to be a, a way to – there has to be a, a wise way to transition. I think that entrepreneurship and people quitting their jobs is great, but it, it is over celebrated in our current kind of like world. People are like, I quit my job and I'm doing my, I'm living my dream. And I'm like, and everybody's like, yeah, way to go. And then two months later, they're like hurting. It, it can happen. It totally can happen. But oh, yeah, absolutely. What I, so this is what Mel says. Do whatever you can. Like there are seasons in life, and sometimes you got to work a little bit harder and more hours, and and be but be intelligent about what you're doing. Make sure that it's actually effective. And then there are things that are there are seasons where you can actually like experience the harvest of what you've put in. So, so she says in your side job or your side thing or whatever, like create a situation where three months in a row, three consecutive months, you have made enough money to meet all of your living expenses, just bare minimum expenses, three months in a row that is on top of your other job. And then when you've done that, then you can think, then you can begin thinking about uh, transitioning. And so this comes back to like, what do you, what do you have control over? Um, and so, I, I think that people should focus on that. Focus on what you have control over. Get a clear plan of action, and then don't f around with things that don't move the needle. So many people are like, "Oh, do I need to build a website?" Like, do you, do you need to build a website right now? If the answer is <laughs> yes, like if you're honest and yes, you really do, then do it. But are you actually just doing that because it's what you think needs to be done? Is it going to make you money? Do things that will actually generate revenue now, and then you will set yourself up for a, something that can be able to uh, make you grow your brand or like increase your 
increase your things later. Like I did the first, okay, it's talking about being a life coach. I've been an entrepreneurial and a life coach for entrepreneurs, helping people grow their business and get to $10,000 a month. I've been helping people do that for three years. And the first year I did it without a website and I made a hundred thousand dollars my first year without a yeah, website. It's, you're able to take advantage of platforms. And I always say that too. And that was like my reason for not launching this podcast for the longest time is because I was just like, I had that same thing in my head. I got to build a website. I got to have four perfect episodes before I launch it. But it's not true. You you don't. You can use Facebook. You can use Instagram. You can use Zencaster. You can use Podbean. You can use Apple. It's like yeah. all these platforms that exist already, those are the websites and they're free, <laughs> you know, just like if you can take advantage of that and build your audience with that, then, then eventually you can build your website. So you made, you made six figures your first year doing life coaching. Yes. How? Because I, <laughs> how did you do that? <laughs> Great question. Um, this, uh, man, this is, this is how I did it. And the, the, the first part of this answer is going to be very unsatisfying. And then the second answer would be like, oh, okay, we give a little bit more context. First answer, and it's so true though, so don't dismiss it, anybody who's listening. I believed that I could and I felt worthy of and aligned with that outcome. Hmm. And as a result of that foundational, like, and I'm not, when I say belief, it's not like just some arrogant like thing, or like I deserve this. It's not about deserving. It's about mm -hmm. being like innately worthy of it. I stopped judging myself. I stopped feeling pity on myself. I started taking accountability for my life in every single situation that I was in. Because, you know, we talk about pitfalls. Okay. In between when I stopped doing, this isn't all rainbows and unicorns, guys. I made money doing music and then things a, a confluence of things. I had a, we had a child. I, I, my agent stopped uh, her agency and things were good, but they, for the next you know, 18 months, they would slowly, slowly trickle. And I started aging out of the, of the uh, market that I was in, meaning that I'm no longer a young, hip kid that can relate with the 19 year old college kids, honestly. I just call it for what it is. And also looping became not a novelty. So I wasn't a novelty. I had a kid. I was older. Uh, my agency, I was no longer the top dog at my agency and all these different things over a course of, uh, you know, probably, um, three years, things started going down and down and down and sliding to the point where I was, have, I was having problems and we were, we had had our second child. And she was a little tiny baby and we were on government assistance. We were on WIC. Yeah. And so if you're not familiar with that, it's WIC is women, infant and children. It's a, it's basically food stamps, government food stamps, but they have to be spent by a woman. Like a, 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 a male cannot go into the grocery store and buy the food. And so we were getting these government checks and we were kind of struggling. I was $20,000 in credit card debt. And, uh, we, and all this stuff, it was not the best situation. Yeah. And one day I didn't even intend, intend on telling the story, but one day, you did. yeah. So really? my wife would wake up at five forty-five in the morning to go to the grocery store because she felt shame and embarrassment for using these food stamp checks. She didn't mm. want anybody to see her. And so mm -hmm. she did it uh, when nobody else was at the grocery store. And one day I woke up and she had was coming home from the grocery store at friggin' 6.15. And uh, she came in and she held the grocery bag. She walked in, she put them on the counter, and she was just crying. Hmm. And I was like, oh, my gosh, are you okay? Are you did – did you – are you are you hurt? Did you fall down? Like what happened? Like did you – and she looked up at me and she's tears in her eyes and she said, I can't do this anymore. I just can't live like this. I can't, I, and she had quit her job because we had had a second child and now she couldn't go teach anymore because it didn't work with childcare and all this stuff. And so I realized in that moment, oh my gosh, 
I like, that was a huge wake up call for me. That was like this a moment that I think about and that really drove me. And I was like, I need to stop throwing myself a pity party and start shifting my mindset and my behavior now. This isn't something I can do later because so many people have this waiting energy, like oh, when the timing's right or when, and I've talked about timing earlier, but like you have to at least start something. You have to. And it, you're not guaranteed that it'll work. Elizabeth Gilbert talks about how like just because you follow your dreams, like the universe, the God owes you nothing. Like you don't, you're not owed success, you, but you, you got to at least give it a go. And so I decided that I was going to stop throwing myself a pity party and start thinking about like, what can I actually do now? What do I have control over? And I was like, okay, um, I feel out of alignment with being a life coach because my life is in shambles. So instead of doing that, how about I talk about my journey? Like it's basically like documenting what I'm doing. And I'm just going to start on Facebook and my podcast, my podcast. I'm going to start talking about this. These are things that I've learned. These are things that I know. And I'm going to share my journey of getting my shiz together. Like yeah, I'm that's, your, that's your tagline too for your podcast. I'm on the yeah. journey. You're invited. So yeah, which my I podcast. relate to you so much. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Next level life is my podcast. You should yeah. all go listen to it, but like straight <laughs> up it, I'm on the journey and you're invited. So I didn't position myself. So it's positioning in the marketplace. How am I positioned? I position myself as I am somebody who is learning this stuff. Follow along. And people who are one to two steps behind me are going to want to learn from what I'm doing. People who are ahead of me are not going to want to learn from what I'm doing. And I am not at a position in my life to where I can be 10, 12 steps ahead of people. I just can't. So I'm just, just going to focus on what I have control over. So I put on my podcast and I, I, I used and I spent all of my social capital, all of it. Social capital is uh, favors. Okay, I didn't yep. ask anybody for favors for a couple of years. And then I asked every single person that was that had ears and a computer, I asked them for a favor, which was to subscribe, rate, and review to my podcast. And I talked about my podcast and I told everybody that it was going to debut at number one on iTunes. I told everybody it was going to debut at number one on iTunes a month before I even released it. Wow. And I was so committed to that. And I did the work. Uh, learning about the algorithms, learning about how to you know edit and post and do the different things, and I bought a little podcasting course and I like freaking did it and straight up, it worked. I debuted at number one in my category of personal development yeah, on launch day, and I, I I was able to use that as a huge selling point, and then people started taking notice because I did something undeniable. Like do something undeniable. And now people had to pay attention to me. And I let people know that, okay, if you want to learn about this stuff, okay, then then here's a way to book a call with me. And this is when I was not making a lot of money and I didn't have a lot of money. And mm -hmm. but I was I wasn't promising people money. I was promising people like shifting the way that they were thinking. And I knew that I could deliver on that because I, because I had done it before. I'd done it before. Like, <laughs> look at where I've come from just in the last year. That was kind of my energy around this. And, yeah. and then I slowly started learning more about how to structure my own business and how to make more money in my own business. I took a lot of marketing courses. I took a lot of, you know, uh, just business courses and just learned from people and mentors and stuff. And then I joined masterminds, those kind of things. And then I started feeling comfortable teaching people that I could help them make more money. So talk about what, what are people known for? I put all of my sticks into one point on the wall, <laughs> which is you can like, I'm going to help you level up your mindset so that you can feel more peace. Okay. So you like, you can, you know, be happier. You have better relationships. You can let go of anxiety. You can do these different types of things. You teach you how to think better, how to feel better, get a man, manage your emotions. And I did that. And then after about a year and a half, I was like, Oh, now I'm going to teach people how to make money because I know how to do that now. And then because I had built up this, I had kind of broken through that wall in this, these different communities that I had been a part of. Um, then 
I <laughs> was able to start talking to people about like, here's how to build your business from a creative standpoint, from an entrepreneurial standpoint. And then I started charging people, I started charging people $10,000 for them to work with me to help level up their business. And I was getting people results. Like all, that's all people care about, man. People care about results. Yeah. If you can get somebody else results, they don't care about the method. And so then I got asked to, to do corporate training for other corporate people would hit me up and ask me to do leadership training at their corporate uh, headquarters. Uh, I asked to do, got asked to do a TEDx talk. I continued doing, I got asked to be on all these different other stages of from from other people's, um, what's it called? Like this, their events. I got to work with one of my mentors in Australia and uh, work with some other people that I was huge fans of. And then all of a sudden I'm, all of a sudden I'm peers of theirs because I'm, I've done the things necessary to get up to that level. And it, life is just so fun and life is just interesting. <laughs> and life is, is full of anxiety and full of uncertainty and yeah. like, it's full, like it's just is and we are on this journey we're on this ride and if you want it to be something different then you're going to be disappointed like it it's uh, all of the things it is all of the things and when when i embrace the fact that life was all of the things it was the disappointment it was the frustration it was the joy it was the anxiety it was the peace then I stopped judging it and I stopped judging myself and it, and things got easier anyway. So there's that. Well, thank you, man. I love it. And this is, I, this does relate in the creative space to me. It's, this doesn't fit a traditional nine to five. And I, and I just, I think that this is something that you did from nothing. You know, when was the last nine to five job you had? <laughs> oh man. I think the last nine to five job I had was in 2006. Six, two thousand seven. <laughs> Where was it? What were you doing? I was working at Chesbro's Music here in Rexburg. Uh, of I, don't know. I, I was work. I was a. I was a, a teller. I would. I would sell guitars and and sheet music, and I was just at a music store. And then I would just ring people up, like I wasn't. Yeah, it's just like working at a music store. Yeah, but I think my la my last nine to five was about the same time. I don't know. It was a little bit later, maybe two thousand eight, something like that. It was Guitar Center. Oh, snap. You worked at Guitar Center. That's absolutely. so cool. Pro, pro audio. Yeah. Pro audio. <laughs> Makes sense, man. Makes yeah, sense. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to say what they, you asked, like how, how did yeah. you make the money? I want to actually yeah. give somebody a concrete answer around that. I, because I, I said, okay, I believed in myself. Cool story, bro. That doesn't help me. Okay. Well do that first. And then you'll be able to understand what I'm talking about. This, this next part, because if you don't have the mindset, then when you get the steps, you won't follow them straight mm. Um, so what I did is I launched a podcast and on that podcast, I spent the first, you know, five, six weeks just asking people for ratings and reviews and sharing and subscribing. That's all I did. I used all that social capital doing that. And then I got my numbers up and then I had a bunch of subscribers and then I started telling people, okay, um, I'm going to, I'm working with people on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And so I'm going to do get a schedule a strategy session. So I put my link in the podcast and I just opened it up. It was like a, a, you can book me or Calendly like those links. And then I had people come on and then I learned about sales and then I sold people customized coaching programs. And then I got results for those people. And then I asked them for referrals and then they started referring people. And then I got to the point where my one-on-one -on -one coaching was full and I was charging a thousand dollars a month for people to, to work with me. That's how much it cost. And then I was like, okay, now my one-on-one -on -one is full. And I just focus on that again, one thing, one thing, one thing, one thing. And then when I got to that point, I started um, saying, okay, it's time for me to do a group coaching program. And I was anxious as balls. It was, it was, it took all of my mental and emotional effort to launch this program. Cause I'm like, who am I, who am I to teach this in this way? How can I get, can I get, uh, people to listen? Can I get results for people in a group setting all this stuff? And I decided that I was just going to put away my ego and be willing to fail. 
and I launched my group coaching program and I did. That is so opposite of the way people think. And that's what I love about it. It's just, what do you mean? So, well, I, I feel like a lot of people would be afraid to launch something like that because of ego, be, uh, the opposite, right? Like, Oh yeah. You know, like I'm not going to do that because that's egotistical, but, but for you, it was the opposite where you said not doing this is ego is, is me having something to lose or something like that. Me getting it in front of myself and preventing myself from accomplishing this. And cause that's, cause I think the opposite way and I need to listen to you more. Well, tell me what you mean by that. Cause I think we might have different definitions of ego. So I would be afraid to be the expert in a space because of ego. I would say, I don't want to do that because oh. do, you, do you know what I mean? Like, ah, uh, they're going to think that I'm egotistical saying that I'm the okay. expert in this space. So, so for me, ego, that, that totally makes sense, man. I, I hear that dude. It's for me, ego is less about like feeling um, arrogant and like you're better than, and it's more about the actual, like the definition that I use is like, it's a collection of, of stories and programs in your brain that tries to keep you safe by not doing anything that will damage your fragile ego, right? <laughs> it tries to keep you safe. So, yeah. so you say egotistical, uh, in that context, yeah, it might feel arrogant. But when I'm saying ego, my ego is saying it is not safe to do this, Preston, because you might fail and then mm -hmm. you will look foolish. And mm -hmm. that is my ego preventing me from actually creating an impact because worst case scenario, is not failure. Worst case scenario is you actually have some sort of skill that you can use to assist other people and you don't do it. And then they don't get to experience more life in that way because you don't even offer it to them. Exactly. And, and so I, it's really interesting to hear me hear you say that Lars, because I view you as an expert. Like I just do. And I think that it's easy to not view ourselves as experts because there are people that know more than us. Yeah. So what does expert mean? Uh, exp to me, expert means you know something more than somebody else and you help them out. <laughs> That's all. So in, in, that, in that definition, everybody's an expert then. In everybody, you know? dude. Yeah. Every single person. And here's the deal. Like if you have seen a movie or gone to a restaurant and I have not seen that movie or not gone to that restaurant, you are the expert. <laughs> Even if you've only seen it one time, yeah, you are. Like, and so, yeah. like, you don't have to own the restaurant; you just have to have gone there. And then you can say, "Hey, look, I'll help you out because I'll tell you where to park or what to order or something like that." And people are going to be grateful for that information. So, well, the way that I view myself is, I'm not freaking Tony Robbins. Like, I'm not even pretending mm -hmm. to be yeah. right. But I know a lot more than, and I have put in the work and done the effort and I've done all the, I've failed enough for everybody combined because I've been willing to fail. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've done all this stuff and I have created a situation where I can help people and I don't know everything, but if I know more than you, it doesn't make me better than you. It puts me in a position to assist. And that's what I've done. I, it, and if I say, oh, that's egotistical. No, no, no. It's, foolish for me to not acknowledge that I have put myself in a position where I can assist somebody. Well, and, and so that's what I would say to you and everybody else listening. What are you good at? Not are what, not what are you the best in the world at? F that noise guys, just say, what do you, what can you help somebody else with? And then acknowledge it. There is something I effing hate it. When I tell somebody Hey, that's awesome. You did a great job on that. And they say, oh no, it was nothing. Like, accept my compliment, man. Like when, when I say this is great to somebody and they say, man, thank you so much. I really enjoy doing this. Then what does it do? It, it allows us both to acknowledge that something good was created. There is no honor in pretending something is not good just so you can be humble. It's, th there's no honor in that. Well, there is honor in saying, Man, thank you so much. I, I really enjoy doing this and I love doing it. And it's so fun to be able to work with you. And I love that we're creating something good that, that, that impacts both of us positively. That's 
where synergy happens. That's where creativity thrives. And that's where like love and connection is able to create more of itself, not in pretending that you're not an expert. Thank you so much, Preston. I just really appreciate your time and your your talent and your knowledge here. Where can people find more uh, about you? Oh, dude, thank you so much. So Next Level Life is my my company and uh, my podcast. And so if you go to wherever you listen to podcasts, you're listening to one right now, Next Level Life with Preston Pugmire. My last name is Pugmire. And on Instagram and Facebook, Preston.Pugmire. And uh, listen to the podcast and then hit me up on Instagram. Follow me there and because I, I do a lot of different things to help entrepreneurs get control of their mindset so that they can put more into the world and make more money because I want to help people get to $10,000 months. Whew. Man, I'm so glad you guys decided to stick around for the end. Wasn't that awesome? That podcast was so cool. It started off as like, oh, we're musicians. We're having a lot of fun. Then it got really rocky. And about 40 minutes in, I started to feel like a little bit sad. So, oh my gosh, like you should have just been a musician for the rest of your life. This is killing me, man. And now I, I just am so proud and happy for Preston and everything that uh, his business and life is shaped up to be. And I, I can't wait to see him personally. I know we're going through this COVID stuff and it's bumming me out, man. But uh, Preston, can't wait to see you. We'll see you next week, guys.